The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. So reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I add my welcome to Wills. It's great to be together this morning as we come before God's Word, seeking to learn from it and be changed by it. Last week in our study of Deuteronomy chapter 6, we studied God's warning of the dangers that lie ahead for God's people as they enter into the land of promise. And in light of these potential dangers, God called Israel to obedience, but obedience that is rooted in the reverence of who God is and in the remembrance of his redemption for his people, taking them out of slavery in Egypt and providing them with a place to go that would be their land. And so this morning, as we just heard read, our text centers on the theme of holiness. Israel is called to be in the land of Canaan, but not of Canaan. Israel is to enter into the promised land, but not become like the people of the land. And this distinct covenantal relationship that Israel shares with Yahweh is to be worked out in their conquest of the land and also in their fidelity and worship of God alone as they enter into this promised land. So that's the landscape. That's where we're heading this morning. So let's pray and let's ask God to bless our time and his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would give us humble hearts and give us clarity that we may see your word not merely as good advice, but as your good word to us, that we might live God-honoring lives in complete surrender to all that you ask of us and call us to. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good and for your greater glory. For it's in Christ's matchless name we pray, amen. Well, not too long ago, one of my sons was running late for a morning meeting at his school, and as he approached the parking lot into the building where he was going to go in for the meeting, he noticed there was a vacant parking spot right in front of the front door. 
And so in his haste, he parked right there and went into his meeting. And not too long after that, he got a text from one of his teachers that said, you need to come out and move your car. It's about to be towed. You may ask why? Well, in his haste to park in that spot, he failed to recognize and see the sign that read, reserved for the headmaster. That spot was reserved for someone special, someone specific. And so he was not allowed to park in that spot. Well, as we'll see this morning, the people of Israel are reserved for God alone and therefore are meant to inhabit the land that God had reserved for his people alone, his most prized and treasured possession. And so in our time together, you see in your outline, the way we're gonna study this text as we see God's call to holiness. We're gonna see it in three couplets. First, God's call to holiness is sure and it is sovereign, but it is also cooperative and complete. And then finally, it is covenantal and caring. Notice in verse one, the sovereignty of God as God is the one in his sovereign initiative who orchestrates and paves the way for Israel to go into the land and inhabit it. Notice there what Moses writes. He says, when the Lord brings you into the land and he, God, clears away the nations before you and when the Lord gives them over to you. Here, God is acting on behalf of his people And the nations in the land who though are many and mighty and powerful are going to be driven out and destroyed by the sovereign hand of the living God. Now from a human perspective, the idea of Israel marching into this land of Canaan and annihilating these pagan nations seems preposterous. Not only are they outnumbered and outskilled, but their opponents already possess the land. This was an impossible assignment although it seemed. Yet God provides Israel assurance of victory in this endeavor. God has sovereignly ordained Israel to possess this land. And notice in verse one, Moses doesn't say if, he says when the Lord brings you into the land, when the Lord your God gives them over to you. The victory is God's alone. Israel, by virtue of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, are the beneficiaries of God's unmatched power and of his gracious provision in receiving this land. Now we may struggle as we heard read this passage in reconciling God's call for Israel to completely come in and destroy the nations. It seems like God is doing something that would be condemnable today. But we have to understand what is taking place here is unique to the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. Israel's mission to occupy the land of Canaan is different from any other military action either before or since. This holy war is not a form of ethnic cleansing or rugged imperialism as one is noted, nor is it prescriptive for any present day. This is a sovereignly ordained event in the history of redemption. Now, in addition, we have to understand that these nations were not innocent. These Canaanites were not worshipers of God. They were worshipers of false gods, many false gods in the land. And so God had actually been very patient with these wicked nations up to this point. And as one theologian, Meredith Klein notes, he says, God, the judge of all, can determine to begin to mete out justice on these nations now rather than waiting until the last day. 
God uses his people, Israel, as his instrument to bring just judgment upon these rebellious and wicked nations. God is removing the nations so that Israel can be distinct. They can be separate from the nations as his treasured possession. God's divine grace and love of his treasured people is what is at the core for this command for them to remove the pagan idols and the religious traditions of, that, of those lands. Moses, again, speaking to God's sovereignty over his people, he says in verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you from all, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. Again, notice the certainty with which Moses speaks about Israel's identity here. Moses doesn't say that Israel, once you enter into the land, you're gonna be holy. No, he says they already are holy. Now kids, holy just means to be distinct, to be set apart from, to be different than. God is calling Israel to be who they are as they enter into the land. A holy people who are distinct and set apart from the nations so that they can be a blessing to the nations to carry out the covenant made with Abraham years before. They are not to give their heart to anyone but God alone. And thus they're told to completely destroy the idols and the pagan religions that were in the land. Israel here is given a specific mandate of God's revelation to go in and to do as he's commanded. Now, as we think about today and think about the church, we are not given the same edict and the same mandate as Israel was. But we are to learn from this, as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, this sovereign God who gives Israel sure victory as they enter into the promised land is the same sovereign God who thousands of years later would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world to gain victory over sin, Satan, and death. It's precisely because of Christ's perfect sinless life, his atoning death, and his resurrection that we who put faith in Christ are now called holy and righteous before God. And Peter testifies to this sure and certain reality in 1 Peter 2 when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why is Israel to battle and fight as they enter into this land, even though they were outnumbered and outskilled? Because God has secured the victory and he's gonna supply everything to see it through to fruition. This really is the description of our sanctification and our growth in grace as believers in Christ. While we, as believers, the new Israel, the church, are not called to physically fight pagan nations, we are to wage war in a battle against the spiritual forces in the heavenlies, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 6. Those that we are called to drive out are sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s, and so I grew up watching the Rocky movies. Starring Sylvester Stallone, if any of you have seen those. He's a small-time boxer that builds a, a good boxing career. And so to capture a new generation, the Rocky franchise has come out with three Creed movies based after the name Apollo Creed, who was the champion that Rocky beat in Rocky II and went on to be good friends with before he died in Rocky IV. 
And so in the first Creed movie, uh, Donnie, who we find out is Apollo's illegitimate son, is trying to find Rocky so that Rocky could be his boxing trainer because he wants to fight like his father. And so he finally, after doing a lot of convincing, convinces Rocky to train him. And in one scene, he takes him in the boxing gym and he goes up to the mirror on the wall and he brings Donnie close and he points to Donnie's reflection in the mirror and he says, you see that guy right there? He says, that's the toughest opponent you will ever face. Brothers and sisters, our greatest opponent is not outside these walls with the various issues we're dealing with in our culture. It is not with any political party or ideology. It's not with a boss. It's not with any other relationship. Our greatest threat and greatest opponent lies with inside our own hearts. And while Jesus has defeated the power and the penalty of our sin at the cross, the presence of sin still remains until he returns. And so we are called daily to wage war against indwelling sin that remains in our hearts as we seek to live out our true identity as one who's been declared righteous and holy before God. Now for some of us, as we think about our sanctification and our putting to death or mortifying as the Puritans called it, our flesh and remaining sin, we can often overlook and underestimate twin realities. One reality that we can overlook and underestimate is that we are facing a fierce opponent that needs to be fought vigorously. Because as the scriptures describe Satan, they say that he is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But the other reality that we often can underestimate is that we have the assurance of victory as we fight. Because God has conquered through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our enemies and his enemies. And speaking to our call to live holy lives, John Owen puts it this way. He says, one of the nefariously wrong ideas Christians have about holiness is related to where we start. We don't start with doing. We start with the work Christ has done in our lives by his spirit. And he goes on elsewhere to say, holiness is nothing but the implanting writing and realizing the gospel in our souls. See, we can strive for holiness in our lives because of God's sure and sovereign work through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even while we wait that day when we will no longer have to battle sin. God's call to holiness on our lives is sure and it is sovereign, but it's also cooperative and complete. Notice Israel takes, is to take by conflict what God has already graciously given them to them by his gift. And even though it is God who ordains victory over these nations and he says he will deliver the nations into their hands, Israel is called to actively fight and to destroy the idols and the altars and the symbols of the pagan religions. You see what Moses says there, you must defeat them. You must devote them to complete destruction. Israel is not to sit idly by and just hope for the best. No, they're called to engage in battle to secure this land that God had given them. And notice the extent to which they're called as they enter the land to fight so that they might remain faithful and be the distinctive people that God has called them to be. Verse two, he says, as you enter in the land, don't make treaties or covenants with the people of the land. Why? Because God had already, excuse me, Israel had already entered into covenant with the holy God. And so therefore they were to give exclusive love and fidelity to God alone 
and they were to carry out and honor the terms of the covenant that they made with Yahweh, not to bow their knee to any other idol or religious practice in the land. And then in verse three, he tells them not to intermarry. And we see that Israel is to be distinct socially. They're not to marry the people in the land. Why? Because God knew that they would be tempted and he knew that they are weak. And so he's actually in his care for them and his provision for them. He says that they should refrain from fellowship and from marrying those in the land. And then furthermore, in verse five, he goes on to say that they are to be distinct in their worship of the holy God. God demands complete devotion to himself. And Moses says in verse five, this is why they're to break down the altars, to dash to pieces the pillars and to chop down the asherim and to burn their carved images with fire. In order for Israel to remain faithful to their God, they must eradicate every idol of the land so they wouldn't give in to idol worship or syncretism and barring from the religious practices. And we as Christians, we are to devote our lives in complete submission and honoring of the Lord in what we say and how we think and how we act. Like Israel, God is calling us to engage in the battle of eradicating the idols that remain in our own hearts, the things that seek to steal our affections and our love from God. Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in us to will and work according to his good pleasure. I remember when my boys were younger and I was teaching them how to swing a golf club and I began teaching them how to grip the club correctly and putting their hands on the golf club. And then I stood behind them and I would move their feet shoulder width apart to have a good base there and I would stand behind them and I put my hands on top of the golf club. And I said, on the count of three, we're gonna start to swing. I would count to three and we'd take the club back and we'd bring it to its peak and then we'd come through the ball and hitting the ball. Now in that activity, who was doing the work? Me or my boys? Yes. See, while yes, I was the one that was in complete control of the golf club, guiding them exactly how the swing was to go, they had to put their hands on the golf club. They had to open their hips to be able to swing the club. They had to relinquish their wills and their desires in that moment to give complete control to my leading so that we could swing in the proper way. This is a picture of the cooperative nature of our sanctification in Christ. God alone is the one who calls us to himself because we are dead in our sins. He's the one who grants us a new heart that we might believe by faith and that we might be declared holy by virtue of Christ's work and his death and resurrection. And then it is the Holy Spirit that is gifted to us that indwells our hearts so that even if imperfectly now, we might be enabled to strive to work to resist our enemies. But in order for us to engage in the battle and to remain faithful, we must yield our desires and our wills to the leading of Holy Spirit. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4, he says we are to put on our new identity. We're to clothe ourselves with Christ-like character to fits who exactly we really are, a beloved son and daughter of King Jesus. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He said, holiness is not something we're called to do in order to become something. It is something we do because of what we already are. 
in Christ, our authentic self is holy and righteous, pure. And we must remember God's promise that he made to us, that the work that he begins in the lives of his beloved children, he will carry it to completion at the end of Christ Jesus. And so the reason why we work, the reason why we engage in the battle daily against sin is because God's at work in our lives. Will reminded us on Monday as we were in our sermon discussion of John Murray's, a quote from him from Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and it's a great quote. It's rather long, but listen to what he says related to our sanctification. He says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. God works and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and our working. And listen to this, the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is from God alone. The battle to turn from our sin, put sin to death, is a participation in Christ's own life and in his defeat of sin. Because just as Christ was victorious over our enemies and his enemies, so we too who are hidden in Christ are more than conquerors. We can fight because the Spirit is at work in our lives. And so we must actively work out our salvation because the reality is, is we don't drift towards holiness. Apart from Holy Spirit-empowered, grace-driven effort, we will fall into temptations and compromises and disobedience of all kinds. And God is after complete transformation in every detail and aspect of our lives. Nothing is off limits whether it is mentally, emotionally, physically, how we view our time, how we view our money, our recreation, how we rest, our sexuality, our private lives, and every one of our relationships. In what area or what areas in our lives have we given into sin? Maybe even given up hope that there is hope for transformation in this area of my life because I've been dealing with it and struggling with it for so long. Where are we living inauthentically because we are giving into the fleshly desires of our life rather than living out of our true identity in Christ as a saint? Over 65 times the New Testament calls believers saints. That's who we are. That's who we're becoming and that's who we will be perfectly when Christ returns. Maybe some of us are serious about our sanctification, but we've actually turned the fight of faith into a moral checklist. And so what we try to do is try to put away some bad habits and introduce some good ones and we think we're good. But the, one of the problems with reducing our sanctification to a moral checklist is it doesn't deal with the idols of our hearts. And what it does is it also overlooks a lot of things that God calls us to because we live by our own standard rather than living by the standard that God has set. And then the standards that we set, we tend to overlook things like gentleness, humility, patience, sexual purity, 
stewardship, self-sacrifice, and many others. In order to do daily battle with sin and the idols of our heart, we have to dig down deep to the roots. Now springtime is here and that means so are the weeds. And so if you're trying to eradicate weeds from your yard, you have only a couple of choices. You can mow over them, which is what I do, and they just tend to come back the next week or a couple weeks later. Or you can dig down deep below the root of that weed, pulling out the entire root. Therefore, that root will not come back. That weed will not come back ever again. For us to uproot the idols in our lives, we have to ask the Spirit to reveal what is making this sin so attractive in my life. Why is it so seductive to me in that I am drawn to it so strongly? What am I not believing about God's goodness, about his provision, about his love in my life that is driving me to settle for this cheap substitute that cannot and will not satisfy? As John Owen famously said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. In Christ, God has equipped us with everything necessary to live a life of godliness, most significantly, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. And so this means we are able to walk in him and to strive for the righteousness as God desires of us. In Christ, there is no temptation that is too strong for us that God does not gonna provide a way out. That's what he, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. And so we're to make every effort we can to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of God because he's already set us free from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And when we do fail, which we will, we can boldly go before the Lord asking forgiveness and he will readily grant us forgiveness and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. We work, we fight, and we strive like mad because God is at work in us. Lastly, and more briefly, God calls us to holiness and his call is one of co it's covenantal and it's caring. Now what's at stake for Israel as they enter the land is not merely the survival of Israel, but also the preservation of the truth of God's revelation that is entrusted to them as his covenant people. See, when God calls them and commands them to go in and to do as he has said, he is not doing this as a, an angry God who is demanding obedience because of his own ego. He doesn't need that. He's doing it as a loving father that cares for his children. And since his children are his most prized and treasured possession, he will always desire what is best for his children, their growth and their flourishing, which is why he gave us his law, so that we would know how life is best lived. This second generation is to follow God's instructions, not only because it's gonna go well with them in the land as we've already seen. They would experience abundance and blessing in the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, but not only that, it would be a blessing and a gift to the next generation after them. And if the second generation does give in to idolatrous practices as they enter into the land, then God knows that their children and their children's children would be seduced by that and they would follow suit and turn from God and experience the devastating consequences. But if the second generation offers complete worship to God alone and pursues holiness by carrying out what God has called them to do, then they can testify to the faithfulness of God and the blessings that they're experiencing as they enter into the land. Parents, parents, 
grandparents, aunts, and uncles? Do we ever stop to think how the decisions that we make, the words that we use, and the lifestyle that we live impacts the next generation? Do we ever think that the way that I pursue holiness and strive in the power of the Spirit is not only an example, but it is a call to the next generation to do likewise, to pursue the Savior at all costs because the Spirit is at work in them. If God cared enough to send his son to redeem sinners like us, to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west, he has proved his trustworthiness and his care that we can entrust every aspect and detail of our lives to him. He's worthy of our full devotion and our worship. Are we modeling that to the next generation? As Paul exhorts in 2 Corinthians 7, we're to live our lives as we bring holiness to completion, he says in the fear of God. And as believers who are living between the already of Christ's first coming and the not yet of his second coming, there are different practical outworkings of our distinctiveness than there were for Israel. But nonetheless, God's heart for his people has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We as his believers are called to be in this world, but not of this world. And neither has his care for his people changed. God is gracious in supplying everything we need, even so much that he's provided this meal that we are about to partake. This is a victory celebration that we're about to enjoy as it points to the great wedding feast that we will one day experience when Christ returns. But it's more than that because even now, while we are called to fight and battle, it is spiritual fuel and nourishment for our souls so that we can remain in the fight and remain faithful to our God. And when we fail, know that he is right there with us and he will supply what we need to continue on until he returns that day. And sin we will struggle with no more, but we will enjoy the victory celebration with our God and King forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when the days are long and the battle seems overwhelming and that we can't endure, we don't think we can go on, Father, would you remind us that you've already gained victory, that we are doing cleanup battle now and we are not alone because you're providing us with your spirit and every resource we need to remain faithful to you and put to death the remaining sin that indwells in our hearts. Father, help us to trust and believe that you are at work and would you embolden us by your spirit to fight the good fight until the very end that we meet you face to face and we enjoy and experience the reward of our inheritance because of the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now come and feed us at the table that we might be strengthened this day. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.